Blog Talk Radio. Slow down, touch your life. Don't you know there's friends to be found? Lift your eyes and see the world. Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. I'm your host, Lawrence Knorr, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press. Sunbury Press publishes print, audio, and electronic books under 10 to 20 different imprints in a variety of categories sold worldwide wherever books are sold. This episode, I want to introduce Tony DiOrio, one of the three founding <clears throat> members of the 1970s hard rock group Bang, who were, rec- who were Columbia recording artists. Tony was the drummer yeah. and the band's leader who took them from the basement to the bright lights, as described in the recent book about the band. Tony is also a natural entrepreneur with business experience in retail, music, and construction, three very different sectors. Tony, welcome. Hey, it was Capital that we were recorded on. Oh, and I said Columbia. Oh, Finn, sorry about that. I should know I wrote the book. Okay. <laughs> they, were, they were the label the Beatles were on. I mean, it was a no-brainer. Yeah, yeah. All right, duly noted. All right. So, you know, I wanted to talk about entrepreneurship, and so let's begin at the beginning. Tell us a little bit about your youth, you know, when you were born, where you were born, and and your first exposure to business. I uh, I had a very idyllic childhood. Uh, I was the kind that would wander around the creeks and lift up rocks and crawfish, and, and I always found things to do. Uh, my dad had started a, uh, a, a business of five and ten uh, variety stores, like five and tens, like Woolworth, back during the war. Um, but I got to tell you about, just going back about 150 years, my great-great-grandfather helped build the Transcontinental Railroad. He, he was there working on it. And he went back to Italy and, he, and said that those people are savages. He wouldn't ever, said he would never come back again. <laughs> and... So my dad, he came over when he was about five. My mother was born in Poland, Pennsylvania, because my grandfather was a coal miner, and they moved back to Italy. He, they were Italian, so I come from a, an Italian, Italian family. Um, my childhood, I went to, uh, I went to a Catholic boys' school or Catholic school from up to the uh, eighth grade, but I went to a public high school. Got left back my sophomore year. Um, I wasn't, you know, I just wasn't trying. And uh, my, my senior year, I went to Stanton Military Academy so I could play sports because I was uneligible. Already having four years of uh, of sports, and I wasn't allowed the fifth year. So I went to Stanton Military Academy. This was '62. I was on a championship football team. I was the little Italian kid, you know, 165 pounds. I was playing with men. These guys were six five, two yards. There was a bunch of guys that would go there before they went on to college. We had all these all-stars from Philly, all-staters. So I was, you know, I, I was the lightest by 20 pounds. But I, I made the team, and I scored a touchdown when we beat Another military school, 63 to nothing. Wow. I, the one thing I want to say about Stanton Military Academy was that I set the 
100-year record, this is who I am, of going AWOL. And it was a record that stood for 100 without getting caught. <laughs> I used to go AWOL to visit this girl, this town girl, who I eventually married. But I was going AWOL, uh, and I was up to about 50 or 80 times, and, and they knew that I was going AWOL, and they, uh, they couldn't catch me. And so they moved me to the South Barracks, which was a three-tier barracks with a, with a guardhouse in the middle. So they had me up on the third floor so the guards could watch my door. So I went over to the gym, and I cut and stole the rope that you use to pull the backboard up, you know, when yeah. they were using it. I made a hole in my floor, and I used to bury the rope in my floor. And at night, I tied it to the radiator, throw it out climb down a rope and run and see my, my, my future wife. Town boys used to lend me a car, and I would just keep, we'd spend the night driving around looking for gas stations. So eventually, wow. uh, anyway, I, uh, I eventually got caught. I got busted. I, got, I, I have a, a saber, you know, my uh, post-grad year. I had a sword instead of a rifle. They took my sword away, busted me to private. And sent me walking, you know, guard duty for the rain and, and, and all. I left Stanton, and uh, within a year or two, I got I married that girl. Um, as far as my youth, I was about 17, and I was coming home one night. This is uh, 60, early 60s, and it was late at night. I can remember it was dark, and the disc jockey. He's just shocking. They didn't even call me anymore. The DJ said, I have this new record, a new sound from this group from Liverpool, England. And he played, I want to hold your hand. And it's the first time I heard it. And it was like, wow, this is it. This is what I, I want to do. I was hooked. So when I was 25, I had married with three kids. I started playing drums. I just, I looked at guitar. I looked at piano. I, I couldn't handle that stuff. But the drums, I looked at, I said, man, I can do this. All I can do is practice. So um, I, I had a, I was running a chain of stores. I opened up a pet shop. I ran a pet shop. I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. Yeah, well, let me, let me take you back just for a minute, one. too, if I can, because I, I, like, I like to stick to the early to mid-60s for a little while, because I like the idea that you're in this military academy in, like, 1962, before Vietnam, before all the changes that happen in society and uh you know when did you first get involved with the five and ten the family business was it was it right out of the military academy uh you know what what were you doing did you get involved with what the five and ten business the retail stores uh, well i was raised in it uh my dad was a started out as a stock boy at mark's department store market so we're from the east and he was a, he was a, he got up to be a manager or market cook in a part of the harvest store. During the war, he went out on his own. He was working at the war plant and then and then, and then opening up a store. Uh, we were named being Diorio at the time. The Italians were looked down upon and they they discriminated against us. So he couldn't call it Diorio's five and ten because nobody would they wouldn't <laughs> they wouldn't shop. So he called it Richardson Variety because that's where his first store was in Richardson Park. So I started out as a stock boy making 25 cents an hour. By that time, uh, my dad had had grown the one store to five, six stores. 
because he brought his brothers in. He brought in three brothers to help him build it. But up to the point as I was growing older, the brothers could see that, you know, I was going to take over at some point. And uh, so they, this one year, uh, it was, it was uh, late summer, they wanted to cash in those stocks. So they, my, my, dad, my dad had to give away two stores and, and, and cash up front. This is in, in the September. And we have, and this, they're stocked, they're filled with Christmas stuff, right? Right. And, but my dad's got all the bills that he has to pay at the end of the year. So they, they disappeared and it just chilled the business. I mean, it was just, you know, we, it was awful. So we muttered through for a while. At some point, I took over the business. What was happening at the time, this is just when discounters were starting. And they were just killing the mom and pop stores. Uh, at this time, we had like we were down to like three stores. So I opened up a couple of stores called Death's Discount, and it's where you just stack the boxes up, like the the uh, Sam's and these guys today just stack boxes up. I, that's what I was doing, and I was going all up and down the East Coast buying closeouts. I found this toy wholesaler in Philly who was just overloaded with Mattel toys. This is when back, yeah, this is back in the uh, late 60s. And yeah. they had all these Mattels, everything from G.I. Joe, uh, everything, Hot Wheel cars. I, I just bought everything from this guy because he was just a penny on the, on the dollar. I, and I would run sales. Like everybody was selling, a, you know, everybody had hot cars. Uh, Hot Wheels, I'm sorry. And they were selling anywhere from 79 cents to a dollar everywhere. I put an ad in the paper, and I sold 100,000 of them for three for a dollar. I was buying carloads, railroad carloads of of, uh, uh, paper towels from, from, um, uh, who's that big company there in Philadelphia, paper towels, Scott Paper. And they, because the printing, was bad, and they weren't shrink wrapped. <laughs> so I was selling these things three for a dollar, and everybody else was getting seventy nine cents a piece. So I made an incredible splash doing this uh, because the big guys were coming, big retailers were coming to see me, the big toy retailers, and they're saying, "How can I sell a Mattel toy less than they were buying it?" And I was making a right. profit. So we right. had this monster year. Uh, once I got this thing off the ground, it was a monster year. And uh, basically my dad retired, had retired and I was running everything. And I opened up a couple of stores. And at the time I was playing drums in a, in a local band playing clubs called December's Children. And these guys decided to go professional. They wanted to go on tour and play nightclubs and bars well, I, I, had, you know, I had three kids. I'm running a chain of discount stores. I couldn't go. I just, I just no way I could do it. There was, there was nothing there. But I told myself, if it ever time ever comes where I can make something happening in music, I'm gone. You know, if it, if it, if it's big. And uh, that brings us up to, uh, yeah, uh, you know, how I met so, guys and. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you end up meeting the Franks, and you're practicing in the basement. You start bang. I'm gonna to have to fast forward through a lot of that so we can get to the more yeah. the, the business side of bang. But 
I'm kind of amazed that you're married with a couple kids. You're in your 20s. You're 10 years older than the other band members. Uh, you still have the stores at that point. When you take off with Bang, I guess, what do you do with the stores? How are they? Are they shut down? Do you hand them off to somebody? Well, first of all, we, we you know, they were 17, I was 27. They were a couple of young kids, but they were budding musicians. And we practice in, this, in the basement of one of the stores. There's a picture right. of it with the low ceiling. Uh, so we practiced in the basement for 18 months, just practicing and writing material and playing Black Sabbath and other, you know, uh, hard rock bands. And we had only played out like three or four times in all that time. Uh, what was your question? Well, I, I wanted to get to, uh, you know, you're playing in the basement and you're writing original music. And yes. uh, what prompted you to focus on that rather than a lot of cover songs? Was that a business decision on your part? Was that a goal of the band? or? Well, we weren't thinking business. We were thinking that, wow, this is fun. Because we're, 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 we were all writing, you know, I used to write poetry uh, because, and I still write poetry. All my lyrics, almost all of them are in rhyme, which a lot of people can't even write in rhyme. But all my stuff is in rhyme so you can read it without the music. So it was just natural for me to just write words in rhyme, which made it easier for the Franks to come up with melodies. And we, like I said, we were we were into to Black Sabbath. We were they became our they were our idols. And of course, we blew them off the stage one day, but that's later on. Uh, and uh, we just wanted to we were just happy and content writing music. We had a we started out with. Uh, uh, keyboard players and front, you know, trying different things. We always went back to three piece. At one point, we had this front man. His name was CJ, and well, he could sing. He was like a blues singer, and he was singing all these songs, you know, the like death of a country and certainly meaningless. Um, one day, we're practicing in the basement, and he's singing, and suddenly he stops and he he runs to the to the stairs. He says, guys, i got to go. I'll see you later. He ran up the stairs. We never saw him again. We had no <laughs> idea what happened. He was gone. He, his, he, his, we, our first gig was in a mental institution where CJ was living. <laughs> he, he was a patient in a mental institution while we were playing in a band. And so that's why he just took off one day. I so, think, yeah. Uh, this is we just, uh, we just the story of Bang and its rise to the top is like Spinal Tap, but weirder. I mean, it, it's almost impossible to believe, but it's all true. And uh, some of these stories are are amazing. But let me let me focus you on. Uh, you know, you seem to be the leader of the band, maybe because you were the oldest. Would you Would you agree with that, or are you guys more? Uh, yeah, I was just, equal partners. Musically, yes, musically, but as far as at this point in the business and, and think of just pushing ahead, it, it was me. God gave me an incredible, like I said, imagination, and I would think of things, just weird things, and I would jump, and we'll get to, I would just jump on things that are so, you, know, you to, to, the, to the entrepreneurs out there, you, know, you just got to keep going, you just got to keep your mind open, and okay, it's just a path. And if it's a path, I'm going to go down it. If I fail, I'm going to back up and I'm going to go down another one. I was never afraid to try anything. Even if it was stupid, 
And yeah. one of the reasons we did it, made it, was because of some stupid decisions that I made. But I felt, why not? I can handle no or forget it or, you know, whatever. I was never afraid to try something, no matter what it was. Well, I, along those lines, and now knowing you guys and knowing your story, I think probably the the riskiest, thinking about it from an entrepreneur's perspective, where you take the leap, where you jump in the pool, as they say, or they leap in the fire, the, the riskiest decision you made was when you all hop in the, the car, the station wagon, and head to Florida. You leave Philly for Florida. You do not have a gig. You don't have anything planned. But you have an idea, a vision that when you get there, something's going to happen. Talk, talk a little bit about that because that really, that's one of these ideas you're talking about. Yeah. Well, the thing is, not, it was an accumulation of fate and destiny. It, it had to be. Okay, so there was this bar in Kennett Square. Uh, Anne Land, we used to hang out. And a couple of the four or five gigs that we played, we played for a picnic. And I'm there one night. And there's this band uh, playing, and, and I hear the bass player say that he was in the band Classic Four, which had the hit Spooky. It was a big hit back back then. So I thought, wow, this guy has a hit. You know, I I gotta let me talk to him. Find out what do you, what, what, how do I make bang? It was me. How do I make bang happen? So he's talking to me. He says, there's a record distributor, Tone Distributors in Miami. This is a distributor. They had a hit record, and it was Window Washing Woman. It was a novelty record, and it was a hit record, and they were looking for bands to sign. So, you know, that night I'm sleeping, I'm thinking, boom. The next day I woke up, I went to the bank, I borrowed $1,000. We went and rented a trailer. We hooked it up to, our, to my uh, station wagon, and we headed down 95 to Miami, okay? We're driving to Miami, and as we're passing Fort um, Orlando, we realize we have no more pot. So I think pot was a big part of it. So we pull into Orlando to 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 uh, well, actually we pulled in the, into um, uh, to to find a place to to buy some rolling papers. We found this this uh, record store uh, that had rolling you know I'm sure they had rolling their rolling papers. So we went to the record store, and they were just closing, but the guy let us in. And I saw this sign in the window that said, I mean, this stuff is incredible. Like, you can't make it up. This sign in the window that says, Battle of the Bands. And I said, hey, man, we're a band. You know, where do we go to play? He says, oh, that's an old poster. That was last week. He says, but, but Rod Stewart's playing over in Orlando. Once you go there, maybe you can play with him. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so... That night, we're, we're in our tent, we're high, and I just blurted out, we're going to Orlando, and we're going to play with Rod Stewart. You know? So we pack up our tent, we head to Orlando, to the stadium there, it's an out, and we pull into the, nobody stopped us, it was about 11 o'clock in the morning, we pull into the, basically pull right onto the floor, you know, with the space wagon and the trailer. And we're looking around. I'm looking around. Who do we talk to? Who I, so I went into the building, saw this door, and I banged on the door. And this big tall guy opened the door. And he looked at me, and I said, "We're bang from Philly, 
and we're as good as any effing band in the world, and we want to play tonight. We got all our equipment in the trailer. Let us set up. Listen to us. If you like us, let us play. If not, we'll leave. You know, and I clanged my, you know what, in front of this guy's face, and he was he fell back. You know, uh, he said, <laughs> okay. And how can he refuse? <laughs> and so we, we set up our stuff. We did about a 20-minute set of, of our all our original stuff. And he came in and said, okay, you guys can play tonight. So here we are, just <laughs> opening up for Rod Stewart, Deep Purple, Matthew Southern Comfort, and there was the sort of the three bands. So being the opening band, we were right on the edge of the stage. You could barely fit, you know. Wow. And we did about uh, about a 20-minute, 30-minute set. There's about 8,000 people there. Got a great reception. Went off stage knowing that we had no roadies. So we just played about 8,000 people. Uh, we had to go back up and pack up our equipment. So I'm tearing my drums out. And these people down in front of the stage are looking at me like, you look, you know, weren't you just playing? And so we, 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 we packed up our, we took our stuff off the stage and went back. The guy was Rick Bowen, who had East Coast Concerts, who was partner with West Coast Concerts, who owned the concert business. They booked everybody from the Stones to Led Zeppelin and everybody. So he says, I have a hotel I'm partner in, in Fort Lauderdale. Why don't you guys get down there? And I'll be seeing a couple of days. A couple of days he comes back, we meet him at the airport. He says, how would you guys like to play for Steppenwolf, open for Steppenwolf in Richmond? And it was like, boom. And that was, that was the beginning wow. of putting us on major shows. We played, we opened up for the major bands of the era. I mean, all of them, except the Stones and maybe Zeppelin. Everybody, if you name anybody, we probably played for them. That was big back then. And that was yeah. that's how we started uh, every week. We, we would play with the Guess Who. All right. So Travis, I... Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's amazing. So barring $1,000, hitching up a trailer to the station wagon, driving down 95, looking for some rolling papers, seeing a poster that's out of date. The store owner giggles, laughs, and says, yeah, Rod Stewart's over here in Orlando. You go over there, and you're actually playing with Rod Stewart or in front of Rod Stewart. I should say before Rod Stewart. That's And then, yeah, band after band, concert after concert. So Rick Bowen, let's talk a little bit about that or relationship. So you borrowed $1,000. Were you able to get any of that back? At this uh, point, <laughs> you don't remember. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if you're uh, you're probably seeing your investment paid back in the experiences you had, but um, yeah, I know. We didn't make a whole lot of. I was going to say with the making the first record, um, that was funded by Rick as well, was it not? Yes. What happened was we. Uh, so we had we had Death of a Country that we had it was a concept album that we had written. It was about pollution and it was where my head was at. You know, I was into life, death, spiritual stuff, pollution, uh, science fiction. That's that's where my head has always been and that kind of stuff. So we had so he took us into he he funded uh, us going in to record Death of a Country. We went to Criteria Studios. And our engineer was the guy that produced Staying Alive with, you know, with the uh, Bee Gees and, 
and while we were there, it was, you know, Stephen Stills and all these big guys who were recording. So we recorded Death of a Country. We had, we, we knew this, we could play it backwards. We got three key months of playing this stuff. So we basically did it with very few overdubs. It was, uh, uh, we just had it down. So <clears throat> Rick started talking to Capitol and other people and, uh, uh, on the basis, we got signed on the basis of who was managing us. The, right. the Capitol knew that we would be playing with the biggest acts in the world, so people were going to see us. So, but they said, "Death of a Country." You know, we we, didn't, we we don't want a concept album for the first album. So they brought in a producer, Mike Sunday, who had just uh, uh, produced. Uh, I'll forget the name of the band. Big heavy metal band. So he came in. Blue Cheer. I think it was Blue Cheer. Blue Cheer, exactly. So yeah. we would we were practicing in the Miami Auditorium, big venue, and it was just wonderful that we practiced there. So he came and listened to all our stuff, and he said, you know, uh, he says I'm going to come back in two weeks. I says I want you to write an album that sounds like Grand Funk, Black Sabbath, and Led Zeppelin. He came back in two weeks, and we had written our classic album, the Bang album. Yep. And uh, and you talked about the uh, and so immediately Capitals said, you know, they yeah they started pressing it. Now the the, the hit we had on the questions, Capital didn't even want to put it on there, and we insisted that they put questions on there, and that turned out to be a, a hit. Yeah. So. I know then you, you make a couple more records and uh, like, what I want to kind of get into two more things with the band. One is the day you come into the studio here, you are Tony, the entrepreneur, sort of the driving force, the energy, the visionary, and you find another drummer is taking your place. I mean, that must've been well, devastating. Yeah, right? One of the, uh Besides the time I, I uh, when I was at SMA, I was a high hurdler, and I and I had won every event my whole year. But early on, I had a back problem, and I had to get Novocaine shots, and so I couldn't practice. The state, the the, the military state finals. My mother was there in the stands. My sister, and and I think I I don't remember when I came in because I couldn't run. I was hurt. That was the most devastating thing in my life at that point when I lost. This thing, I come walk, we walk, we walk to California to record and go into the studio, and there's this big guy, tall guy sitting on the drums. I said, what, what's this? This is Bruce Barry. Yeah. Drummer for the Nat. Great drummer. Best, Great drummer. Yeah. One of the best in the world. And the producer says, well, he's, he's going to do these. I had done three tracks in Criteria. I then recorded three tracks. So the producer, the a-hole, decided that, well, this band's happening. If I get a better drummer, it'll be a better band. Not understanding what we were. We were a marriage. We were a brotherhood. We were, you know, we were one. And he came in and just destroyed, first of all, he destroyed me. It was like, what? You know, this is my band. I named the band. I saw, an ad, I saw an article in Rolling Stone that said, English groups bang in the U.S. I said, man, that's a great name for a band. And I said, and they, but they were saying, 
English groups explode. I said, bang, boom. And so we, we got it, and I registered, and that's how we got the name. So here I am, the father, the godfather, and I'm not playing drums. So I actually was so into the band that I said, okay, we'll let them play on this, and I'll just keep practicing. So I was still practicing. I hadn't been playing drums for three years, and, and Bruce had been playing since he was three. Yeah. Uh, so I thought I'll practice, you know, and, uh, and I tucked my hurt away, and Bruce just did incredible drums. But what was happening was changing our sound. You know, I, I, I just was a, a plodding heavy metal drummer, and, and Bruce comes in with just, you know, 100 licks a second. That's everywhere. That's going everywhere. Our music started, was starting to lighten up the sound bowl. Yeah, and that's... Point, Go ahead. I was going to say, at some point, it was, I just, I had, I I was just so disillusioned with everything. It felt hurt with everything. I left the band and I went back to selling white socks in the variety store. You know, I had left all that business behind. And uh, uh, and my father had actually come back and was to run it. And, you know, all my relatives just could not understand how I could do this. But, it was it was what I was supposed to do when when the I told myself if the opportunity ever came up, boom! I had an opportunity to become a rock star. You better believe I'm taking it. And uh, so I, you know, eventually I had left, I left the band. And so, so you touched you touched on a couple you touched on a couple interesting points that sometimes happens with entrepreneurs when something starts to grow and blossom and other people get involved. It's very hard to keep that original spirit, the original core, the original atmosphere or idea together. And it becomes diffused. Others influence it. And sometimes it can, you know, fade out fast. That seems to be what happened with bang. And I I know you've started to become the manager of the band at one point, but at the same time, you talk about the music changing, what the record company wanted. Um, it, it just seemed to kind of lose its energy. Is that a, is that a good take on it? Yeah, uh, what the record company wanted. Can you believe that they actually asked us to do a song like I Am Woman? Uh, because that was a big hit at Capitol. They wanted Bang to do an I Am Woman type of song. I think mean, it was nuts. Well, yeah, what happened hard. was... I, Music change. There was a problem with. There was a thing going on with Capital. The guy that signed us and all his people were fired. It had nothing to do with us. It was just a, a regime change at Capital Records. So all these new people came in who had their favorite bands. Who's Bang? I'm going to do Bang. They Capital. They were really promoting us, uh, and we had. You know, we were selling a lot of albums. As soon as this happened. Everything stopped promoting. They stopped promoting us because these people started promoting their bands. So we had no support. We would go to gigs. There was no support, nothing in the paper, you know, nothing. Uh, and so that was it. And then the manager told the Frank, you know, the Franks were out touring. They got a new drummer and guitar player. And, and they called Rick one night, and he told him, don't call me after 10 o'clock. You know, this, uh, everything was falling apart. That's when I stepped into the, the, the I, I, I took over to being the manager. You know, I, I was so unqualified for it, but I didn't know. I didn't yeah. know I was unqualified. I want to do this. I can do this. Entrepreneurs, I can do this. Never give up. Never surrender. That's from Galaxy Quest, man, and that's my creed. 
so I just pushed ahead and took over management. And that's another so, story. Uh, yeah, so the, I have to ask you about the Erie Soda Pop Festival. I don't know if you you know exactly what concert I'm call, referring to, but it was that that place in Illinois where they were trying to do redo Woodstock in the Midwest, and it was a big screw-up. Um, <laughs> lots of people but not much management. It all fell apart. You guys were like the last act and they, the fans burned the stage after you guys took off. I'm wondering, is, is that, is that one of the concerts you were the manager of the band? <laughs> no, this was, this was before I, the French were out on their own. And, uh, uh, and, and you know, I was, in, and I was back selling white socks. Oh, this and, was the other drummer. Uh, yeah, this is the other drummer who sold my drums, by the way. If, if you're out there, I like my drums back. <laughs> Can I just right. tell you about, talk about concert, tell you about the Puerto Rico Pop Festival? You want to talk about a, a screw yeah, up? I, I don't know I that we time? have time for, I don't know that we have time All for right, that, but. Um, yeah, so, so the band, I guess by what, 73? 74 was pretty much done. I know you were out of it and then you tried to manage it, but then you guys sort of gave up at that point. Um, Would you say, would you say the changes in music also influenced that the record company trying to make that happen? Like I I know music was, was kind of coming out of that early seventies, heavy metal sound and Disco was becoming popular. It seems like you guys, like they were trying to influence you to go more in a pop disco direction, and you guys are resisting that. Is that true? Uh, yeah, they were. They, they were like I said, they wanted us to do an "I Am Woman's by Helen Reddy type of a song. Yeah. Uh, but the, the, the man, me managing didn't work. We were being blackballed. We were being blackballed by West Coast Concerts, Rick Bowen, and Conscious West. They told every promoter in the country, if you book Bang, you will not get another band for us. Wow. I had a guy, me, on phone, who was going to put us on tour with, uh, forget the guy, with this, this well-known name, and I was talking to weeks with him. And at one point, he said it never existed. It was a ruse. It was just to trick us into thinking this. And, it, and 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 after that, that's when that's when it was over. It was like I, yeah. there's nothing to do. I'm done. I and and we just and, just, and Frank, Frankie moved to Texas, and at some point, you know, I, I moved it to Texas. That was the end of of uh, Bang. You know, although we did get back together after a number of years, but that was the end yeah. of the original. Just, right, right, I right. So. So you, I guess Richardson's, you end up, it kind of fades out and closes up. Was that was that because of the, like the big box stores like the Kmart's and Walmart's coming along? Uh, yeah, like they you were talking. So yeah. how long did Richardson's last? Was that into the seventies, late seventies, or uh, not even that long? No, they were they went into the to the late seventies. <laughs> you know, I, I don't remember. I'm I'm the type of person that I'm never looking back. I never look back. I don't try to I don't bring up things so I there are so I don't retain a lot of information. I'm always look, looking at right now and in in the future. I mean yeah. not that I don't you know what I'm saying, I'm just that's what I focus on. 
So like you're, I, you're, I have no idea what year that was. I mean, if I thought about it, I probably could figure it was the late seventies. Yeah, because I moved to Texas uh, in in probably seventy eight or seventy nine. Yeah. Okay. So now you moved to Texas, and I know you got into another business. So you go from the family business, the five and dime. You you start a band that becomes a, a hit at Capitol Records. You have several three, I think three albums and several singles that come out there. You know things collapse there. Now you're on to uh, back to Richardson's, and then that fades out. Now you're on to another deal, which uh, another entrepreneurial opportunity where you get into some construction. So I, I think it's kitchen remodeling, if I'm not mistaken. Tell me, tell me about that. How did that happen? Because that's so different. Well, what was so uh, I'm still living up in, in Claymont, Delaware. When when the band fizzles, uh, my immediate thing is I'm going to open up a, a recording studio. So I had and one of the stores I actually started to, to build a recording studio, and. Uh, I just couldn't. I just couldn't give up on music. You know, I just I felt like it was it was it was part of me, and I had to do it. So we fucked around with that until I, I was, and I had all this equipment ordered, and you know, and thousands, and, and I realized I can't afford this. You know, my my dreams were just I couldn't. My dreams were bigger than my pocketbook. So I had to close that up, and. But I had this in my head that I just need to get out of this retail business because it's only going to be a matter of time before I'm back in the music business. You know, it's just a matter of time, a couple of weeks, a couple of months. And so I gave up my 260Z, my American Express. I gave up all, the, all that stuff. And I actually went out and started roofing and, and aluminum siding. And I started doing this all this physical work. I was young. You know, I was 28. I eventually got into... Uh, kitchens, and I just had a thing about kitchens, so I started remodeling, I was flipping houses, and I was doing a lot of custom kitchen remodeling, eventually started my own cabinet company, I was building my own cabinets, and 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 I did that for a number of years, I hated it, you know, it's, it was just, it's something I had to do, I, you know, walking out, every morning walking out of my house in the morning, it was just a drudgery to me, I, it, I did it. I was good at it. I started. I was. I was doing things that nobody else was doing in cabinets. I started a company called Price Per Foot. This, I was the first person to do this, and I and I set up a thing. Uh, initially, with a menu, paper menus, until the internet came. But I, I had a thing where a person could pick at their cabinet, tell me how many feet they had, and they would tell them exactly what it was going to cost. Installed. And if they wanted an outlet, how much would it cost? So much to build a, reta- a wall, so much a foot. So people would call, like when people knew it occurred to me, they would, when they called me, they already sold. They already knew what it was going to cost. So I wasn't having to go out and visit people and do the hard sell. When the internet came in, I immediately did that. People could just write in, you know, 12 feet of this. I have an oven cabinet, and, and they would get a price. So I was the first one to start this price per foot business. You know, that well, was you're like the you're moment. like the Henry Ford of kitchen cabinets. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's good. exactly. A lot of people do it now, but back then I was the first one to do it. There was nobody doing that because I had to. To me, it was I got to do I got to do something different. 
anybody can sell cabinets, you know, right? you know, sell them on the back of a truck. I could, you know, if I'm going to, I needed it to be uh, challenged. If I was going to do the cabinet business, I was going to do it as best I could. How can I sell a lot of cabinets? That was, that was it. You know, what do I do that I could become successful? Yeah. And it was feast or famine. <laughs> yeah, I guess when the so yeah, when times were good, there were probably a lot a lot of jobs. Yeah, it was feast or famine. We had a lot of we were making lots of money, or there was there was nothing to you know. Things were tough. And I had a hard time paying bills. So yeah, and it was because I kept it to myself. You know, I, I went to the nowhere to bring in a partner. You know, I saw what happened to my dad, and my heart not being in it. Uh, you know, I, I guess I, I let things, some things slide that I, I shouldn't have. Uh, maybe I, I depended too much on my concept of price per foot and didn't go on enough calls. You know, it was like I didn't. Sure. It's like, here's the price. Why should I? Here's your price. You know, I would tell people what I'm going to cost or whatever. But my heart was in it, and uh, two years ago, I, I basically retired. I did my last. Cabinets. Wow, but I for your heart not for your heart not being in it, you well, sure did it for a good while. So you must have banked some money from it at least. Banked money? No, <laughs> yeah. Never banked. No, I was I, literally a feast or famine. <laughs> and more... Well, let's just say you it, know, it I, put food on your table is, some I, of the time. Okay, we are even starving. Uh, you know, the, the thing is, is there was a problem. At times I had really good help, and at times I had really poor help. And what I was always tell people is, look, if there's a problem, I'll come out and finish it myself. Because I knew how to do everything. I did all oh, plumbing, tile. I did everything, you know, personally. Electrical, uh, cabinets, installations, painting. So uh, I learned how to do everything by, on the Internet, watching people. You know, because I worked for people. I worked for a cabinet company. I worked for remodelers early on, but I was uh, before right. I started playing. So, how many businesses would yeah. you say you started in your in your lifetime? Uh, pet shop business, bang business, discount stores, uh, bang, cabinet shop. Uh, I'm building birdhouses now. Believe that as part time, I I go get fencing, old fencing that people have uh, put up on the road, and I build these incredible birdhouses. That's my. And and then, like I said earlier, in the the past two years, I've done 50 videos. I'm doing a a whole a whole other thing of writing songs, and uh, and doing uh, videos for kids. Videos for children, Santa videos, that kind of stuff. So Tony, we only have a minute or two. Only have a minute or two left, but I I wanted to ask you one last question that I think is probably the most important one. If you if you have advice for young entrepreneurs, what, what would it be? It, it may sound stupid, but it's what I said earlier. It's some galaxy quest. It just says it all. It says never give up and never surrender to what's in front of you, to, to your dream. I mean, I dreamt about becoming a rock star. I did. I became, I had dreams 
you know, when it was I'm playing on a big stage and having a record deal, and I and I fantasize with that stuff. And like everything I've done, I would dream about it. You know, your dreams will come true and all that kind of business. Uh, so you just you just gotta and just don't give up. Just sit there and think. All right, what what, what and and the smallest little little light that comes on, chase after it to see if it's a bright light or if it's going to burn out. Don't just just too many people they give up too early. They're negative. I'm my glass is always half full. My glass is always full. Not even half full. It's always full. I'm running on 10 when everybody else is running on four or five. <laughs> right. Right. Well, we've been talking to Tony DiOrio, one of the founding members of Bang and an amazing entrepreneur. Tony, an amazing life. Thank you for spending the time with us and recounting all those things. Larry, thank you. Appreciate it. Hope to talk to you soon. Okay. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Be sure to check out our books at www.sunburypress.com or search for our titles on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other booksellers worldwide. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are hundreds more available on the BookSpeak Network. You can find our channel on blogtalkradio.com. Thank you for listening. Mm-hmm.